to Hex-Rated Boo-Vs. I'm one half of your hosting team, Matthew Fisher. I'm one half of your hosting team, Ryan Whedon. The witching season is almost at an end. <laughs> In just a couple days, it will be Halloween. Halloween's going to be the two-year anniversary of our first record date. Yeah, because you had to go to work <laughs> after we recorded our very first episode of yeah. Bo Travai. Can you believe it? We were just youthful little gaby podcasters back then. Podcasting pups. It being fall here in North America, I didn't realize how much I miss and love early fall in Seattle. October is the best month. September, October are the best months here. You and I have been binge watching a lot of movies lately, Mm -hmm. mostly podcast related, but you know, obviously we still watch movies for pleasure. And this like dreary, gray, grimy weather and the shortened days... That's just ideal movie-watching weather. Cozy up, get a blankie and your comfy pants on. I mean, that's literally, like, I made myself some tea, and I covered myself with a blanket, and the dog took a nap on my arms, and, like, that's how I spent my Sunday, just watching movies rapid fire. And we get the bonus points of having gay Christmas in the form of Halloween. Yeah. Do you dress up anymore for Halloween? I love dressing up for Halloween. Yes, absolutely. Last year, I was Amy Grant and Weird Al, and I used the same wig. (laughs) I haven't dressed up in many, many years, unfortunately, although I used to take great pride in it. My mother dressed me up in just extravagant costumes when I was younger. So she's a big Halloween fan. Yeah, even from a young age. Like, we went all out on Halloween. I was trick-or-treating before I turned one. I couldn't even say trick-or-treat. Like, (laughs) she would just, like, hold me. Like, I don't even know if I could really walk. (laughs) Like, I would just kind of step up while she hold me and be like, nah, 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 like, and just hold my hand out for candy. She's like, come on, he's cute. Give him more. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, Could you even eat candy? Did you have teeth at that time? I think I had teeth. I'm okay. not totally sure. We went all out. Like, this was before Lord of the Rings. Uh, we did a Wicked Wizard costume one year when I was in high school. Mm. We went and got a uh, graduation gown. Okay. And, like cut like the the cap and she like made it like a wizard's hat oh cool okay and then we took a cane from my grandfather it was like one of those old-fashioned canes that had a knife in it what like you unscrewed the cap and like a knife came out but like the the handle on it was a snake head like a golden snake head oh my god who was your grandpa that's amazing (laughs) so we we borrowed that and she went and found a snow globe at like value village and like uncorked it and poured the water out and you'd use the glass top around the snake head wow so that was my magic wand it was like this like golden snake head inside like a glass case that's cool i was like yeah that was actually pretty awesome how old were you when you stopped trick-or-treating do you know <sighs> older than i should have been i remember that i think i was like 14 or 15 by the me time too, i stopped trick-or-treating. actually me too and that was when i could carry you know like two pillowcases yeah i was just like we're getting tons of candy today and like i'm more i had more stamina then too like the halls when you're older are just like insane yeah i remember the last year that i went was like when people started like fearing me not because of my costume i don't remember what i dressed up as but i was like knocking on people's doors and be like people who go who is it (laughs) i'm gonna picture you in a buzz Lightyear costume if that's okay (laughs) with you 
I was getting so old that like people refused to answer the door if I got yeah. really late. That's how I knew I wasn't allowed to do it anymore because because that last year I did it, we got a lot of. Aren't you two a little old to be doing this? And it was like, oh fuck, maybe. Yeah, which, yeah, maybe. At the time, it really sucked. It was like like popping the balloon on my childhood a little I bit. No, and you know what? I, I I hear these days that it doesn't happen as much. Like kids can't go house to house asking for candy anymore when i worked at the record store it was attached to a mall and it got fucking crazy on halloween really like we went through like 150 dollars worth of candy for these kids and it's like it's cool like they still dress up they still trick-or-treat but like i don't know there's a little sort of thrill in going to a stranger's house yeah everyone's dressed up in costumes you can't tell who's who i don't know just going to a mall it's just it's too much of a safe space i feel like i remember the first year that i didn't have a parent with me it was like me and i think one of my friends and then my brother and two or three of his friends and we were just all a group and it's like it's after dark you're just walking around the neighborhood going up to strangers houses asking for candy you know yeah. and these were like i knew some of my neighbors growing up but there were a lot in my neighborhood that i just had no idea who lived there didn't know what to expect i mean i grew up in an exurb of colorado springs so it was like really far out but like very just like normal people very excited to like hand out candy to people we had one neighbor my mom actually was helping her and her friends to learn how to read they were korean immigrants Mm. and whenever we go to her house she'd have like a you know the bowl ready to hand out like the tiny little milky ways but whenever i or my brother would show up she'd be like hold on and then she'd come out with king size bars for us and it's always like yes (laughs) score anna was her name that was awesome how old were you when your parents stopped going along with you all I was pretty young because, the, yeah, that first year they had my brother do it. So I was like eight, I think. Eight oh, or nine. Wow. Yeah. And he would have been like 12, 11 or 12 at that point. So, yeah, pretty young. Okay. I remember I started going with my friends exclusively. I think I was like 12. Oh, wow. Okay. Where the parents were just like, you kids can take care of yourselves at this point like we had to stay in the group like that was sort yeah. of the caveat to it but i also remember it wasn't terribly long after that, that like one of the older kids tried to steal our candy yeah and I, I was just like i'm gonna go get help and like knocked on our door real quick while he like fought for his candy bag and it was like uh maybe we should call it a night <laughs> yeah that's shitty don't do that hey kids don't steal other people's candy yeah no, they were hard for that. Don't be shit asses. Yeah. This happened several years in Colorado. It snowed, but I remember one year, it probably couldn't have been that bad, but it just felt bad because I was a kid. Like the snow was waist deep mm. and that deterred a lot of people from going out. So we just cleaned up. Like people were just dumping their bowls at the end of the night. They were just like, well, I don't think anyone else is coming. So they would just give you the leftovers and it was like, and that was when I was pretty young. So I just n- remember that any time after that, I was like, fingers crossed for snow <laughs> because that meant everyone would give you all their candy. I remember one year I went to my old babysitter's place and she lived sort of like down a dark, scary road. Mm-hmm. And like during the daytime, it just like looked like any other sort of like rough road. But at night, it looked totally scary. And one year I went down there and she's like, you're the only trick-or-treaters that we've had all night. And so, yeah, she did that thing where she just like, have all of our candy uh, uh jackpot <laughs> but then i guess like people must have like i don't know overread up or something <laughs> in the next year because like i was like we gotta go to this place because nobody goes and they have tons of candy but and we went there and it was like late because i wanted to like 
go there when they're like, oh, we haven't had any trick-or-treaters all night. Uh-huh. So we went there at like, you know, 8.30 or 9, and they're like, oh, we only have these like three musketeers left. <laughs> I'm like, what? People came this year? That's lame. <laughs> what was the favorite thing to get in the in the candy? And did you and did you do trading? That's that's a two part question. <laughs> I don't know. I feel shitty for saying this. I always like the flavored Tootsie Rolls. Oh yeah, those are great. Like regular Tootsie Rolls are fine. Like it like I love chocolate and so like logically speaking, I should love just standard Tootsie Rolls, which mm-hmm. they're fine. But like the flavor, like the blue and the orange and the green ones, like I fucking love those. Like yeah. I can eat those all goddamn day. And even at the record store, like when we'd have all those candies, I'd always pick that shit out for myself. Yeah. What about you? Uh, you know, I, I always love caramel. So Milky Ways were like my gold. Like I always try to get as many Milky Ways as I could. I also was, I'm really big into sweet tarts. So it was like oh, really? you know, those little packages of three sweet tarts that you get. Like I tried to trade for as many of those as I could. Candy bars, like, really of any size or shape I can get on yeah, board with. I'll take with. the quote-unquote fun size, even. It doesn't matter. And in the great debate, so you said Milky Way. So Milky Way, Snickers, Three Musketeers. You, you're you a Milky Way man? I'm a firmly Milky Way man. The peanuts in Snickers get a little salty for me. I want my, I want my caramel sweet, as we've discussed. <laughs> Let's not get into that tonight, Matt. Uh, and uh, Milky Ways are fine. I just find I'm missing the caramel. So, yeah. What about Three Musketeers? What did I say? You I said Milky th- Ways are fine. Uh, no, no, no. I love Milky I meant to say Three Musketeers are fine. I just am missing the caramel. So I read about this uh, years and years ago. I guess Three Musketeers are considered the most, like, more adults eat Three Musketeers as opposed to Snickers or Milky Ways because there's less sugar in the chocolate oh. in, in those candy bars. And so you get more of, like, the chocolate taste, not the sugar taste. Oh, okay. And it's considered, yeah, the more adult candy bar because of it and i guess more adults do eat it like they don't get the sugar overload from it like they get the chocolatey flavor out of it i think i was just weirded out by the idea of nougat because i really don't know what that is yeah, what is nougat still <laughs> to this day audience members uh chime in tell us what nougat is what the fuck is nougat like if someone asked me what is nougat i'd be like isn't that its own ingredient like <laughs> You put nougat into stuff. Aren't there nougat factories and you just buy the stuff? I don't yeah. know. Is it? Oh, I don't know. Please I have no educate idea. us on nougat. Yeah. We need to know more about this nougat. <laughs> anyway, well, this has been fun reminiscing about Halloween. I'm a big fan. Trick or treating. What's your favorite Halloween costume that you ever wore? I mean, it was probably the zombie one that scared people. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, it was like the axe in my neck and it was like we use like fishing line to like keep it propped up so like the axe like stuck out of my neck Oof. and like makeup like full white face with like the big bags under my <sighs> eyes and then like my hair so was like calm. you look now <laughs> and then like my parents even like went to like a value village which is really where we got all our costumes from and like got a suit for me but then we like cut it up and made it all ripped and torn and things like that and they did not skimp on the blood so Nice. Yeah, I don't know. That that was a good one. Love it. What about you? I definitely feel like my costumes got better as I became an adult. Mm. Um, but one of my favorites was I dressed, and it sounds so corny, but I was a scary clown. I was working at Pony on Halloween, and we all dressed as scary clowns. And uh, Jack, Caton did my makeup where it looked like my mouth was coming off to the side, and I had like he had like the black. T- blackout teeth so i had like a bunch of missing teeth but they did it on there too and a crazy wig i just looked very frightening there's pictures on my facebook i just don't 
in general, I didn't ever in general dress to scare for Halloween. And that year I did. And people freaked out. And it oh. was a lot of fun. Yeah. Like, I really enjoyed scaring people. <laughs> yeah, there was a couple years. Like, I remember one year... I was like obsessed with the Marx Brothers as a kid, okay. and I dressed up as Harpo Marx, and like that's fun, but I don't know, scaring people is always more fun. Mm. Boo! Ah! <laughs> Speaking of scary things. Yeah. We watched a scary movie for this week. Yeah, we did. A lot of people consider it the scariest movie ever made. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Care to guess what that movie is? <laughs> is it the movie that I picked for us to watch last week? Yeah. William Friedkin's 1973 masterpiece, The Exorcist. Last week, grabbing the buck. Yeah. 25% chance of getting the buck in where's the buck and he got it it's the only time i've ever been lucky and uh chose the exorcist this is our third friedkin film now go big or go home is my motto i'm just gonna say this hasn't been a particularly scary Shocktoberfest for us this year and that's okay we did different types of horror mm-hmm. but um it's nice to just get back to that good old meaty scary realm you know so the last freaking film that we had, Cruisin, you put it really succinctly, and I think that you should just put in the your quote here. But you're, you were just like... <laughs> he makes adult movies for, for adults. adults. Yeah. yeah. And that's what The Exorcist is. It's a horror movie for adults. I watched a couple documentaries after watching this, and a lot of the people that worked on this movie are quick to say it's not a horror movie. They do backflips to say it's like, it's a thriller with supernatural elements to it. It's a film about uh you know the question of faith and what is religion and blah 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 it's a horror movie guys it's yeah. a fucking horror yeah. movie for adults like just stop <laughs> i mean obviously there were other horror movies for adults like psycho is a horror movie for adults i would almost go to say that like there were more horror movies for adults back in this time of filmmaking than there are now yeah but specifically with this one just it strikes me as very adult because it, well, i mean the central conflict in the movie is a mother who's concerned about her daughter like a very adult idea also the and the other part of it if you want to focus on the faith aspect of it is a priest losing his faith like that's not something that a kid relates to or a teenager you know that's a very adult thought you know and actually the fact that father Karras is having this crisis of faith in the movie is one of the reasons that I like it a lot because Chris Reagan, the mother, Ellen Bernstein, Bernstein, she's the one who's like, we need an exorcism. And the, f- the priest, the father is like, no, like <laughs> you have to go back in time 600 years. Cause we don't do that anymore. Yeah. Like he's the skeptic. He's the earthbound one. He's the rational one saying, that's not going to do anything. I love how she casually brings it up, too, when they first meet. She's just sort of like, so I, I've never been to a Catholic church. Do you, uh, so you drink wine, right? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, mm-hmm. And how do I get an exorcism? <laughs> I also like, because like, she's on the, like, the bridge or whatever, and she has like her sunglasses yeah. and her scarf. And like he touches her on the shoulder, and she's like, don't talk to me. <laughs> I'm like, Respect. <laughs> 
<laughs> at first i thought that was a little weird like i was like why is she dressed like that and i mean a it's probably because she has bruises on her face but then also it's like she's a famous actress yeah so i mean she's playing a famous actress in the movie so it makes sense that she'd cover her face up and stuff so but also another thing about this movie there's not a lot of scares in like the first 40 minutes brings me to an important point i think one of the reasons this movie is so successful as a scary movie is that it spends a lot of time grounding you in reality Mm. like Mm -hmm. there is so much time spent on regan and uh chris's relate mother-daughter relationship that makes you feel like they love each other very much which makes it such a shock when regan flips you Mm -hmm. know because it's like what's happening obviously this is not the child we know i don't know it just feels so real almost to a boring like right on the verge of being like when is this movie going to happen like it's good like it makes it feel like a real like we're in our world the world that we live in there's a couple scenes in here where i would be like i'd be bored to tears if friedkin didn't shoot this so dynamically yeah like there's a scene where it's after reagan's first spinal tap friedkin also is like medicine is a, a horror shit show all to itself ooh, ooh, ooh. i have yeah, a go. hot i have a hot take on do this it, movie do it do it do it do it do it my hot my hot take this time is that this movie isn't about uh losing your faith or anything like that this movie is about the horrors of the american healthcare system oh my god he's putting the system on trial <laughs> I mean, we get uh, the problems with paying for it. We get the horrors of what it actually looks like. Do we get the problems of paying for it? Yeah. Father Karras can't can't afford to put his mom into a good hospital, so he's got to put her in the mental hospital. That's horrible. But the implication is that after a while, the state-run mental hospital pushes her out. Yeah. Because they say that his mother died in her home, and it was a couple days before anyone discovered her. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're I mean, right. that's you a- right. You right. <laughs> and then and then he shows the 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 oh the crazy like stuff they're doing to look into her brain by like getting the like you know spurting blood the spinal her, tap. The, yeah. Oh, I mean that that is like then that little effect nightmare. of like they put the needle in. No, and, like obviously like they didn't actually like. No, they really did. No, yeah, you were lying. She's getting an angiogram in. <laughs> in that fucking scene God, are you serious i'm serious is this That's, this that is actually linda blair's blood squirting out onto her no <laughs> i'm not kidding no okay i'm gonna stop the tape here i may have been a little overexcited in my description of this scene while editing, I was trying to do some research as to whether or not that was actually factually true, and I could not find any evidence to support that. I even turned to the Seattle Public Library. Hey, librarians. And they were unable to definitively say whether or not Linda Blair actually underwent the procedure. William Friedkin hints that it's a special effect, so I think that's probably the case, but uh, man, it looks real. Anyway, I didn't feel like cutting the whole conversation because it's still fun, but uh, yeah, probably not actually undergoing the procedure. Now back to the show. No! Isn't that insane? That is insane! That's how they used to map your brain. And then like just a few years after that is when they came up with, uh, I think, EEGs when they could like map it non-invasively okay but before that they had to put like i think it was either 
I'm not sure. Like some some people say it's a, an air. They put air into your brain. Okay. Like a space around it so they could like map how it like certain vascular things moved around. But then it also like sometimes they put a dye in there. But like, no, she's getting that procedure done. God, good on Linda Blair for dealing with that shit. Can you believe it? I mean, that's why they had that actual radiologist and the radiologist's assistant who was actually a radiologist's assistant who went on to be the murderer. I was going to ask. I knew that there was a murderer someplace in this movie, but I didn't know what part he played. Yeah, he's the assistant who's like holding her head while they're like shoving the thing in her neck. Oh my God. Isn't that crazy? So it's like we had this horrible spinal tap scene and then they do like an encephalephagram yeah. or something. Yeah. And that's where like the thing is like going crazy around her head. I'm like, that looks like a like robot monster claw that's about to crush my skull. See, it's all about the horrors of the American healthcare system. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's what this movie's about. Uh, convincing argument. Convincing <laughs> argument. You. I have, and we can go back. I'll get back to it. No, expand There's now more. if you got well, the details. Uh, sure. Okay. Well, I mean, one of the side effects of a... Uh, n- I'm going to get this right. Uh, pneumoencephalograph yes. is um, headaches and severe vomiting, which also often lasts several days after the procedure. And she does vom in yeah, this. Yeah, she voms a lot. So, uh, just saying, just saying. This is what the American healthcare system does to people. It makes them worse. It makes them turn to witch doctors. Chris Reagan, Ellen Bernstein's character, you know, she's SAG eligible, so of course she should have good insurance. Yeah. But uh, you're you're right about uh, Father Karras. He would not have necessarily insurance to, to cover his mother at at the very least even with her good insurance she still can't get answers about her daughter that's true yeah she's she's like going back and forth she's so frustrated with the system so there's a scene where a doctor it's after the the spinal tap but before the what was the term that you the pneumoencephalograph yes that's what wikipedia says it is uh what's his name uh william peter blatty called it an angiogram so i don't know okay there's a difference and i i it's very technical i couldn't get tell you which is which so it's when that doctor is recommending that encephalophagram sure um the snuffleupagram yeah <laughs> uh and the way that it's shot, there's a scene where they're like resolving the issue, and Ellen Bernstein's near the camera in profile, but it, you can only see like her silhouette. Then you see the X-rays in the middle lit in this like otherworldly blue light, and then you have the doctor in natural light, sort of like looking off camera a little bit, but like still towards the camera. And I'm like, this is such a good-looking scene, and all they're doing is like doing exposition. Like this is all plot. And I think I talked to you about this off pod, but I was like, you know, William Friedkin, just the way that he shoots two people talking, I like. And that's sort of why I like his movies, because even these down scenes, like he finds an interesting way to shoot them. Mm -hmm. And this is like Ellen Bernstein, like she's like rubbing her forehead, like she doesn't know what to do. She's frustrated. She's confused. And with medicine, like, you know, normal everyday people don't know what to do most of the time. Like we have to defer to the expertise of doctors. So it's like, yeah, her profile silhouette x-rays like in the center of the frame and then the doctor lit off to the side normal like this is a good looking shot yeah like that's all that it is and they're talking while this like 
beautiful shot is like what the audience is seeing. This is what makes Freakin so good. Like you really make sure that these down scenes are still visually interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I want to give some credit to the cinematographer who did also did the Adams family. Yeah. Owen Roisman is his name. And uh, I'm going to give a little credit to him because I think he's also at least partially responsible for the perfect shot of when Father Marin shows up. Oh, when he's walking up to the house? Yeah, with on... the lighting and gets out of the cab and stuff. We follow One Perfect Shot on Twitter, and it's really fun to kind of like just see what they say, you know, what is the one shot that encapsulates the movie. And man, there are few that I think are better than this one. Like, it tells you everything you need to know about this movie. This man is lit in a way where it looks like he's important. You know who he is, and he's staring up at a window. And as the audience members, we know what's going on in that window like he's looking up at that thing we know what's happened in that house we've seen the horrors that are going on and we know that he's the titular character that's going to go and tackle that and it's just like that conflict is you know the crux of this movie and it's all in one shot and it's just i don't know it gives me chills to think about it's just really well composed and tells you all you need to know yeah it's really that simple filmmaking that like but that still tells you exactly the dynamics and the power balances here it's really exciting this kind of goes back to like the movie's not like super complex or anything like that like the horror is isolated to this one house and even of the horror it's isolated to that one room specifically yeah minus uh, the pee scene and if you watched a version with the spider walk down the stairs like and i got some problems with the spider walk i'm just gonna say it i watched a version without it somehow okay i I think i watched the original theatrical release somehow so i watched the director's cut which has the spider walk down the stairs and honestly the spider walk down the stairs comes at a really uncalled for time it looks okay and then she like bleeds out her mouth but like the way that it's put into the director's cut it's a little too early like nothing really that crazy has happened yet so it almost seems like too shocking like it, it's like out of the blue. Yeah, it's like it's breaking its own rules, which I guess that's sort of an interesting idea that like most movies set up the rules, like its own rules, like in the first 15 or so minutes. Like yeah. the way that I always explain it is like dinosaurs are okay in Jurassic Park, but if they showed up at the end of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it would be madness. <laughs> and it's because we see dinosaurs in the first 15 minutes of Jurassic Park that we accept them. Right. Okay. And this movie in the first 15 minutes, we don't really see anything supernatural. No, and that's what I mean by this movie is really grounded in reality. And so, like, everything that happens, it's, it's sort of breaking its own rules. Like, in the first 15 minutes, like, we have Father Marin in Iraq. Yeah, well, we get the impression that there is evil in the world. Like, but there is some sort of evil going on. We don't see anything supernatural or mystical in those first 15 minutes. Just that people believe in something like that. Yeah, but it's not really to like, I don't know, minute 45 or minute 50 where like we actually start seeing supernatural stuff. And the I mean, I guess the movie's sort of a rule breaker in that respect. Like it slowly breaks its own rules that it's set up and it just, it keeps breaking them. Like as the movie goes on, it only sort of ramps up in that department. Yeah. Until that final showdown, which you you just know. And like that's why I'm going back to that one shot. It's just like him showing up at the house. You're like, here we go. Yeah. This is it. This is what we've been sitting through. Like you can look at that one shot and know that you're about to see the climax of the movie. Yeah. That you are entering like the third act of this movie. It's just really good. 
I want to talk a little bit about the opening sequence real fast. Um, of Marin in Iraq? Yes, just okay. a little bit. I like the way that that introduces this idea of evil. I always got the impression that Marin was also possessed somehow because he was like touching the doll. And like there's a scene where he walks past a bunch of uh, Muslim people praying and like he has this long shadow in front of them and they don't have any shadows because of the way they're like kneeling down. So I always got the impression that he also was like maybe touched by this evil in in some way. Okay. Um, But uh, I don't know. Regardless, that just sets up this idea that there is some sort of evil out there, um, which gets you ready for whatever's to come, even though there is this long stretch of just like banal living in Washington, D.C. kind of stuff. But I also realized on this watch that because they put Max von Sydow in so much makeup, I was always confused about his age because he's only early 40s in this movie. He's 44. But he's made up to look like he's in his 70s. Yeah. And he kind of looks like that, like he looks now. (laughs) And he's like 90 something now. So like, good job, makeup person whose name I didn't write down. Dick Smith is his name. Mm, And uh, Great name. (laughs) First of all, he did all the... fucking effects for Regan as she like gets crazy older and looks nuts but he also managed to make convincing old person makeup which it's super convincing yeah I just always thought Max von Sydow was just always old yeah I thought that's how old he was in the movie no yeah he's actually 40 something and I saw a behind the scenes thing where like they're you know adding the prosthetics to make him look old oh really he was cute before they started putting that shit on I remember, him. yeah, in uh, Seventh Seal. He was kind of cute in Seventh Seal. Yeah, so it's just like, I mean, A, I think that's a weird choice to choose a young actor for this old role, but B, good on Dick Smith for making convincing old makeup. That is really hard to do. Yeah, that's super convincing, too. And, like, there's close-ups of his face and everything. And uh, you just, I never question it. You never know, I yeah. I never question in it. In sunlight, like in Iraq, it's like bright lights coming on him and they're like close-ups of it he looks like an old man like it yeah. looks really realistic if it were feasible i would say just put in this interview with william friedkin but i'm just gonna <laughs> tell it to you instead uh okay. so he wasn't the first choice to do this movie i heard that yeah so uh originally uh people the like when they optioned out the book they wanted stanley kubrick to do it oh. uh but kubrick only like works with scripts that like he's like had a personal hand in so he passed on it and william peter blatty was really like attached to this like it seemed like he did not want to budge so the next choice was arthur penn he was fresh off uh bonnie and clyde fame okay but arthur penn was like i'm done with violence you know it's like stravinsky was done doing right of spring stuff after right of spring like i get it i get it i get it whatever whatever Then they were going to give it to Mike Nichols, who had done, like, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And Mike Nichols turned it down because, like, he said, you will never find an actress to play Reagan. Because someone who's mature enough to do that role isn't going to look young enough to play the part. Okay. So, Freakin was the fourth choice for this. Now, Freakin was fresh off of French Connection. Which he won Best Director for? Best Director, and it won Best Picture at the Academy Awards that year. Sure, okay. So, you know... Big shot, his next project is is going to be like a big to-do, yeah. like no matter what it was. So he was the fourth choice, 
and he disregarded Mike Nichols' like warning that like you'll never find anyone to f- play Reagan. So Friedkin doesn't do auditions. He doesn't look at screen tests when he's trying to find the right actor. Like he'll go and see plays. Or he'll go and, like, talk to people and just, like, determine that he's right. Father Karras, for instance, he saw in a play. Right. And was just like, that's the guy that's right for this part. Yeah. Jack Nicholson uh, was maybe going to play it. Oh, okay. I heard. And Marlon Brando, even. And both those, both of those, he was like, I don't think so. Uh, Audrey Hepburn was initially supposed to play Chris Reagan. That would have been awful. <laughs> but she was, like, newly married or, like, just had a baby and was like, we can do it, but, like, we'll have to film it in Italy because, like, that's where my family is. And no, he's like, no. well, that's not going to work. Ellen Burstyn's the right choice. But he spent a year, maybe more, looking at screen tasks and doing auditions, even though, like, he's firmly against it. Gene Hackman, for instance, was, like, a nobody before French Connection. Oh, wow. And uh, same Roy Scheider's in that, too. And mm. Roy Scheider, he offered, like, Roy Scheider a part in French Connection. And Rush was like, well, can I see a script? He's like, what's the point? There's like 16 lines and all of them are, ah! <laughs> and yeah, so like he just hires people based on like feel or, you know, seeing them in something else. He'll hire them. But he did screen test and he did auditions for the role of Reagan in this because he's like, oh, fuck, Mike Nichols is right. Like, I have to find someone who's not going to be totally scarred by making this movie, but who also looks young enough to actually play the part in enters Linda Blair and her mother who's like with her and like, you know, like this is my little Linda. <laughs> uh, and like, does like the, a little audition. I'm like, okay, she's good. She's good. She's good. And starts asking Linda Blair like questions is like, so what do you think this movie is about? And Linda Blair's like, well, it's about like a girl who, who does bad things. Like, okay, well what's bad things? Like, well, she hits her mom, and she masturbates with a crucifix, and William Friedkin's like, that word, masturbate, do you know what it means? And, like, the mother's standing there with her arms around Linda Blair. She's just smiling, not saying anything. Linda Blair's like, yeah, it's like jerking off. I said, have you ever done that? I looked at her mother, who was still smiling, and she said, sure, haven't you? <laughs> and so I hired her. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't even her audition. It was just the fact that, like knew herself well enough to not be totally scarred by this movie. And I I mean, I was watching documentaries about this and they said that for the most part, you know, when it came to time to say things like your mother sucks cocks in hell and like, you know, fuck me, fuck me, things like that. They were like, are you okay saying these words? And she's like, oh, I'm not saying them. Reagan's saying them. She's like ready to just separate this a hundred percent. And, uh, also, you know what? Watching it this time, Linda Blair really sells that character. Like, that is a tough role for a... How old is she in this movie? I didn't look it up, but like 13-year-old maybe? Yeah, and I think she's supposed to be playing younger. I don't know if they explicitly say her age. But, but like, she's really 13, but I think she's supposed to be like 11, 10. I mean, she's playing it really well. Like, that is a hard role to play, and I... You know, I believe it. Part of it's the makeup, but I don't think she's, you know, relying on it. No, because a lot of it is her before any makeup. Like when she comes down and at the party and pees. You're going to die up there. Has like a little Stars Born moment. You haven't seen it. It's okay. Um, 
the way that like Ellen Bernstein like reacts to it. It's all super convincing. Like you feel like equal parts like embarrassment, but also concern. Yeah. I mean, and that's all sold in her face and delivery. Mm -hmm. So she just acts the shit out of this role. It's really well done. And, you know, I I can't imagine a child actor being subjected to the things because, you know, Friedkin really subjects his actors to hell, at least in some of his I guess he just terrorized Ellen Bernstein on the set. Like, like, he's just like, she doesn't look paranoid enough, so let me just wreak random havoc on her. I heard a story where, you know, where she breaks her coccyx. I don't know if uh, you knew that actually happened to her. Like, it's after Regan smacks her, she gets pulled back. There's a reaction shot, but, like, the first take they did it, she actually went up to Friedkin. Ellen Burstyn did, and she was just like, that was too much. I could get hurt. And he's like, I understand. And then he, like, looks over at the guy who's doing the thing, and he's like, pull her harder. <laughs> and so the next take he did, and that's when she, like, actually hurt herself. And that's the take they used in the movie. So that scream that she does at that moment is her actually, like... Breaking her coccyx. Yeah, she's like, I'm in fucking enormous pain right now. <laughs> oh, the coccyx is such a tender area, too. Ugh. And it's like... You know, I'm hearing the stunt guy tell the story about it and he's laughing kind of like, and it's like, dude, maybe you're laughing out of like the fact that you're uncomfortable with this, that you did this, but that is so not cool. Yeah. Like you fucking hurt her. I mean, she, Ellen Burstyn's a SAG winner, so her insurance <laughs> probably covered it. So, uh, you know, she's cool, but still. I mean, this is one of the few horror movies to be nominated for an Academy Award. It was the first it was the first. For best picture, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Rightfully so. I think this is a better picture than French Connection, mm-hmm. uh, in my humble opinion. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. <sighs> really? Can you believe it? I cannot. That's a lot of Academy Awards, for, especially for a horror movie. Yeah. It won two. It won um, Best Sound and Best Adapted Screenplay for William Peter Blatty. Okay. Okay. So. On the topic of sound, but not necessarily like sound design or whatever it won the Academy Award for, whenever I watch this movie, I'm always like, oh, Sam Raimi stole everything he knows from this movie. <laughs> like the music and like the opening credits, I'm like, oh, this is how Evil Dead starts. This is how Drag Me to Hell starts. This is how every Raimi horror movie starts. Like he's so informed by Exorcist that. I can't not see that when I watch Raimi films now. And just like Reagan's possession versus like the, the deadites in evil dead stuff. I'm like, God, like he saw this and it embedded so deeply in him that there's just no escaping it now. Yeah. I mean, we should talk a little bit about like what makes this movie special, special effects wise. Because it's just nuts, some of the stuff that they did to make these effects happen. Like, Reagan's room is a soundstage. It doesn't look that way. Like, you know, you get sometimes, you can tell when some when a room is a soundstage. I'm looking at you, uh, tears and laughter. Um, <laughs> this movie, they make the room look like it belongs in this environment. This, like, brownstone, or I don't know if they're called brownstones in Georgetown or wherever they are, but, like it looks real like it, that illusion is never broken never um they bought four air conditioners to like pump into that room so that when the actors came in in the morning it was cold enough you could see their breath there's a scene where they take a camera where people come in i think it's when 
the doctors show up to the house for a house call and the assistant answers the door the camera starts on the first floor then it goes up the stairs and into regan's room which in 73 was not possible without a steady cam yeah and so they had like this weird apparatus where a guy was in like a I don't know, like a wire seat holding the camera and somebody behind him was steadying it as they like walked up the stairs. So like a scene like that to our eyes isn't new, but like back then that would have been something completely fresh. But you know? it, it's also sort of seamless because it's right around that same scene when they walk into Reagan's room and like all the shit's being like tossed around and Chris like tries to go up and consult and like she gets thrown down and there's that scene where it's the camera's inside Reagan's room but it's looking down the hallway uh-huh. like through the open door and the chair slides and yeah. shuts the door yeah like in my mind that's seamless like the way that the audience perceives it like you're in Reagan's room but if it is a sound stage like that's not Reagan's room then. No, like that's yeah. something to like just give the 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 facade of Reagan's room while the door slammed shut because of the chair. But when I think back on it, like you could never tell that. Yeah, there were three different beds apparently of Reagan's beds that each did different things, and it's just like doesn't look like that to me. Like it looks all the same to I me. I mean, you and I, are, of course, are big fans of like doing it for real. But like when she's like bouncing on the bed, yeah. <laughs> Like, that looks crazy to me. Apparently, she was, like, tied into a harness that, like, somebody was pulling her back. And she was like, yeah, so that's why it's so violent. But it looks so convincing. And there's the scene where when Chris comes in and is, like, trying to comfort her while the bed is shaking crazily. And, uh, like, she goes to the doctor the next day. And she's like, well, you know, having, you know, lesions in the frontal lobe or whatever it is can cause spasms and that spasms can like shake the bed. It's like, no, this wasn't her spasming. She's like, I was on the bed. I got on the bed. The whole bed was thumping and rising off the floor and shaking the whole thing with me on it. And like, you can see like how like the doctor would think like, oh, her spasming was shaking the bed versus... No, she jumped on the bed and was holding Reagan while that bed was shaking. Like, it was not Reagan shaking the bed. But I mean, let's let's throw in a little bit of the uh, Rosemary's Baby. No one listens to women uh, horror in this too. Chris is like, I'm telling you, the bed was shaking, and the doctor's mansplaining her out of it. Like, honey, calm down. <laughs> that kind of talking down to real problems like to a woman specifically like that is another type of horror that i think maybe was subliminally injected into this yeah, so this is a year before roe v wade do you think it uh was playing into anxieties about that possibly i mean like i don't know i'm not a woman but i, I definitely believe that there is a fear of for women of just not being believed hashtag kavanaugh kavanaugh piece of shit so i mean she's telling the doctor no i was on the bed and it was moving that was not caused by you know seizures or whatever Mm -hmm. like something the fuck is happening why won't you listen to me yeah like she was trying to say like reagan was shaking because of the bed not the other way around yeah and the doctor does not care they don't want to hear it yeah and i mean ellen burston is the perfect 
actor to play frustration because she's like she's so calm until you just push her over that edge and then like she goes from one to 11 and she's just like i can't fucking take this anymore <laughs> she does it so many times in this movie that is kind of just what chris's character is but i get it like she is just fucking at her wits end you're sorry jesus christ 88 doctors and all you can tell me with all of your bullshit is this time around watching it like i really felt chris's like helplessness and like the heartache of like being unable to help like what you love the most in this world and that's its own sort of horror like just being helpless in those situations yeah that's gotta suck and i think that that like grounds or gives reason for the masturbation scene because it's like what's the thing that's going to push her to go to a church person a witch doctor basically is the word and to use her words and she's just like i don't even fucking know what's happening anymore like this is so over the top for the girl that i know and love well because she talks about earlier how like reagan doesn't swear yeah and the doctor's like uh you know she told me to like not touch her motherfucking cunt or whatever it was uh that's a director's cut one. Oh, okay <laughs> but i read about it so i know and so when chris sees like you know her masturbating with the crucifix and saying, lick me. And then she shoves her mother's face down. And she's like, okay, this is not Reagan anymore. This isn't a lesion on her frontal lobe or, or temporal lobe or whatever that doctors are And this are isn't seeing. split personality disorder. Like no, this is something th- else. Yeah. This is something else controlling her daughter. The way the movie portrays it, it's like you can see why doctors would think like, oh, this is crazy. Like she's just being irrational or emotional or whatever. But it's like because the audience sees it and our sympathies are with Chris, like we see it and we're like, oh, no. Like who are you going to say this to? Like you can't say something that's possessing my daughter to a doctor. Like you just can't. Mm -hmm. So you feel her like at her wits end and you feel – Chris like not knowing what to do in her desperation yeah and it takes like her physically getting hurt by an 11 year old 13 year old something like that like shoving her down and like a dresser falling on her to be like okay this is just not something that science is going to help me with I need to try something else and that doesn't happen for like an hour and 15 minutes you know like we're just still world building until that point, you know, which I think speaks to both the script and the direction that they're willing to invest that much time in the front end of it to make that payoff at the end really like pay off. And it does. Cause that final scene is still, I'll just be, I'll, I'll be frank. I wasn't really scared this time through because I was just so fascinated by the whole process of making this movie and thinking okay. about things like that. But um, one part that did kind of scare me is when Father Marin first walks in the house and they're sort of like, it's really quiet and they're just sort of like welcoming him into the house and all of a sudden you're just and it's so it's good loud. by the way. Thank you. It was so loud. I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> so, you know, there's jump scares in this too. But they're not, I don't know, this has elements of horror, but they seem so secondary to the other plights that are going on. Yeah, there's, like, there's little jump scares, like when uh, Chris is going through the attic looking for rats and like the candle flame goes crazy. Yeah. Which I guess she didn't quite know was going to happen. <laughs> 
See, that's not cool. Come on. Like, she's walking through and, like, yeah, someone sprayed some, like, gas in her direction. So, like, I think she knew something was going to happen, but I, I think she didn't know quite what was going to happen. So, like, her scare is for real there. Or when she's, like, she gets home and it's, like, a nanny or maid was supposed to be watching Reagan and no one's home. Yeah. And you see, like, that the, the Pazuzu face, like, sort of... In the kitchen. In the kitchen. Yeah. yeah. Like, there's a couple little jump scares like that, but really there's not any, like, substantial jump scares. It's not like Reagan, like, jumps out and scares you or something like that. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, if we compare this to The Pact, which we started Schlocktoberfest with, which feels like a story that they were building just trying to find ways to scare you, this feels like they were trying to make a story that was scary. You Mm -hmm. know, like you are invested in these characters and the things that happen to them are scary because you care about them and you care about the things that they are worried about. Well, I mean, we haven't even talked about like the creepy things that happen to Father Karras. So it's like he's down in the subway and that Uh hobo. Father, you help an old altar boy. I'm a Catholic. That's one of those things that, you know, could easily have been a forgotten scene. But I watched this last night with someone and he was talking about that hobo he's like have we seen him before has he been in previous scenes or is this just a like he was talking about it because like he noticed that scene so much but also that scene isn't like diverting our attention necessarily or it's not like so obvious that like we think that it's placing it there for us so when it comes back like in act three when you hear reagan quoting that hobo like we know exactly what's being referenced here but we weren't expecting it to be referenced like there was nothing about that scene that we felt like oh we need to pay attention to this because this is going to come back later yeah it just sort of adds to the foreboding at the beginning yeah and then when reagan's starting to speak greek and be like dimmy you know why did you do this to me and stuff like that like you know the internal conflict that father Karras is going through through the whole movie is really like coming to the surface in this last act like he's having a crisis of faith and this is really compounding it like this is yeah like finger in the wound <laughs> sort of wriggling around dimmy why you do this to me Please, Amy. I'm afraid. The scary elements of it aren't necessarily Regan being possessed so much as like an adult being afraid for the rest of their lives that he didn't handle his mother's death correctly. Or like a mother being afraid that she's helpless with her daughter's play. Like those are the fears, you know, that, that this movie is playing on. And we talk about like broken homes and horror movies. We talk about with extra, we talk about with packed and it's here too. Cause like there's an absent father sure, who, you know, there's a, a void left in his absence. You know, it, this also has like the broken family element to it, but it does play into like the mother not being able to help her daughter enough. And yeah, the uh, father Karras not being able to care for his mother enough, which I mean are lasting things. Like, you know, once his mother dies, like there's nothing he can do. Like he's, he just has that feeling that he couldn't be there enough for his mother. And his uncle's not helping. It's like, oh, if you were a psychiatrist at Bellevue or whatever, then, you know, you'd be able to put your mother in a penthouse suite and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So he's got that guilt that goes along with his mother's death. Like we're not afraid of 
becoming possessed, or at least I never was. Like, they even blow that off at the end. They're just like, she doesn't remember anything. So it's like, why would you be afraid of being in Reagan's position? You're not. You're scared of being an adult witnessing this happening to a loved one or mm-hmm. having to deal with it. So, like, mm-hmm. that is, I think, an interesting take on it, too, where it's like, normally, in a horror movie, you're supposed to Sympathize relate, with symp- the person who's... Yeah, who's being who's dealing with the horror. Or, yeah. Like, But, like, the horror, in this case, is a loved one... The horror the, is like your helplessness yeah. in the situation. Thank you. So, I mean, that's just another way of saying that, you know, he's he's thought about this in a way where it's like, this is an adult problem, you know, like a teenager may be scared by Regan's situation, but they're not going to understand that, like, the horror of this is actually not being able to help her, mm-hmm. you know? I think that's a very mature way to think about scary. I mean, the movies not jump out and, like, shock you scary. It's like these are their lives scary. Yeah. Like this is like them doing their best scary. (laughs) I haven't seen this exorcist in a long, long time. So to see that Lieutenant, like the detective and to know like, Oh, this is the guy who's George C. Scott and the third one. Uh, It's sort of interesting to see like his friendship bloom with father uh, Dreyer Dyer. Yeah. So it sounds like you watched the version where it ends with them being like, this is a beautiful, beginning of a beautiful friendship yeah um i watched the version where it ends with just uh the priest saying goodbye to regan and chris and then he just stands at the top of the stairs roll credit oh okay so it ends on a much more not dour note but definitely like somber yeah contemplative so i definitely thought i was going to be watching the director's cut i didn't get any of the like you know pazuzu faces in the dark I oh didn't, really yeah i didn't get any of the like crab walk scene oh i didn't get any or spider walk whatever you call it i didn't get that ending where the father meets up again with the detective like i've seen that version of it before and i don't know this tight the version i saw was really tight and uh the spider walk you can definitely do without it's a creepy moment but it's it's unnecessary and really like the father stuff with the lieutenant like that's only necessary if you're going to watch the sequels. Did you like that ending? Because I, I, I wonder about that tone of ending on like a, I, we're, this, we're friends now and here's a happy ending. It almost. might be just informed by the fact that I've watched the sequels, but I think if I were to watch a standalone one, like Father Dreyer, Dyer, Dreyer? Not sure. The father standing at the top of the stairwell might have been a better ending tonally. Uh, but the Pazuzu faces are a little scary. I think that's I missed those. I was looking for them, and when they didn't show up, I was like, oh, was I just blinking when they happened? I was like, no, I remember them very clearly yeah, showing up. Yeah, those are sort of important. So, so that that kind of bummed me out. Clearly, we just need a Matt Fisher cut where, <laughs> you know, hey, I put in what's important. Billy Free, we got a proposition for you. Matt wants to make a cut of this movie. I'll do you right, son. <laughs> Big question, little question, regular question. This is a big question. Would you marry a pizza? <laughs> what are the toppings? I mean, your choice. This 
Chris says that she would not marry a pizza in this movie, and I'm just curious if you would. I like pizzas too, but I'm not gonna marry one. Uh, Hawaiian, yeah. Oddly enough, I would not marry meat lovers. Hmm. That's gotta have some veggie. I also like thin crust. I don't. I don't need. I don't need your deep dish. Say that for Chicago. Um, it's, it doesn't hold up as well as you think, you know? It's like, it's always, it looks appetizing, but it's always just a little floppy. No, I just want a slice of pizza. I want something that I can eat in one hand while I walk. Don't give me that deep dish shit. We're going to get it from the pizza pie guys, because, like, they both live in Chicago. I don't need a fork and knife for my pizza. Oh, fuck that. Who does that? We can agree on that, right? We may be divided on certain issues that won't be named now, but we can agree that you don't eat pizza with a fork and knife. Oh, like uh, one certain president that shall remain unnamed? It's disgusting. Come on. Get it together. But yeah, I can see myself marrying a pizza. And you? Yeah, let's add that to the gay agenda right now. <laughs> I would marry a pizza. You want to legalize pizza marriage? Yeah, and then I eat it, and then... Uh, Is that cannibalism or uh, spousal side? No, the pizza's, like, available for that. They're ready for it. That's, like, on their list of fetishes? That's yeah, that's okay. what the pizza wants. The pizza wants me to eat the entire thing in one sitting. It's not spousal side, then? <laughs> I'll have it sign an agreement. It's like a prenup. It's part of the prenup. I don't know if you can sign an agreement to be eaten. <laughs> Why not? Lawyers, chime in. Can I sign a prenup saying it's okay for you to eat me? My spouse, that is. Yeah, I'm going to give a thumbs down to that. There's just no way that I see that being in any way above board. Well, who knows? We've got a whole new Supreme Court. We'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, the new horrors. The new horrors. Uh, Matt. Ryan. This was fun. This was fun. It's fun to do a heavy hitter once in a while. Mm-hmm. Not on the AFI list, right? That is correct. Yeah, last week you were like, oh, but it's on AFI. And I'm like, it ain't. Surprising. Especially considering the influence it's had. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's because French Connection got a bunch of Academy Awards. So they're like, oh, well, we're only going to put one Friedkin on the list. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, this influenced so many horror movies. Since, Definitely. So. It was a game changer. Anyway, what do we got next week? I want to keep up the threads of Schlocktober, but not super schlocky okay so i'm picking just like a suspenseful scary movie not a horror schlocky gore fest cool macabre strange horror movie cool, cool, cool. also you said that you hadn't seen this one so i'm choosing tremors ah okay which i have not seen in a long long time but i remember liking quite a bit this is a movie of you that you watched as a kid a lot ad nauseum no i watched this a bunch a bunch a bunch as a kid okay so uh yeah tremors i'm gonna plug our junk get the fuck out of here yeah follow us on twitter at x rated movies follow us on facebook at rated x movies give us some love on apple podcasts that means stars and reviews it takes just a moment and we really appreciate it contact us directly x.rated.movies at gmail.com and swing on over to our website on the world wide web that is www.xratedmovies.com we'll be here next week with uh, tremors until then uh, your mother darns socks in hell <laughs> <laughs>